BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, July 23rd, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can get, also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Last week, the EPA released a report detailing all of the breakdowns that led to the Flint crisis. Much of this report detailed a sense of just how many officials across departments at the state level and at the federal level made administrative errors leading to the situation in Flint where for an extended period of time, the residents of Flint were exposed to unsafe lead levels, unsafe bacterial levels, and just unsafe water in general. This report reinforced things that we have known for a long time, which is that there was malfeasance at play in how we handled the Flint situation. This week, we revisit that with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. She was a pediatrician in Flint that spent time linking lead levels in the water to lead levels and exposure to the children of Flint. Her experience is detailed in a new memoir called What the Eyes Don't See, which traces her origins as a, as a scientist and immigrant to this country to her unyielding commitment to the health and outcomes of, of our children, to how she took that responsibility and transformed much more into an activist when members of the state EPA began to deny and discredit her results. Uh, she also spoke to me this week about what's happening at the border in terms of family separation and what we can expect based off of what the scientific literature says will be the outcomes for those kids. If you haven't checked out our episode last year with Sid Roy, he was a member of Dr. Mark Edwards' scientific team who went there to establish the engineering and science issues, the cascade of problems that followed from the switching of the water source to the Flint River uh, that brought us to this point where so much lead was leaching into the water system in Flint, and so much so that the infrastructure actually broke. That's a great listen and a great primer for this conversation. So I hope you revisit that episode. So with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. 
This week's episode is brought to you by Memory Bank. Would you consider yourself financially minded and someone who knows how to maximize earnings? What if we told you that you could be earning a lot more interest with Memory Bank's Earn More Checking? Memory Bank's Earn More Checking account pays 1.6 annual percentage yield. That's 30 times the national average on interest. They don't have confusing monthly requirements that you have to fulfill to earn this great rate. Your deposits will start growing from dollar one. Their online account opening process only takes 10 minutes and their online banking platform is easy to use with features like mobile deposit, bill pay, and external transferability. Visit mymemorybank.com slash minds and apply to start earning your 1.6% APY today. 1.6 1.6 annual percentage yield as of 628-2018 paid on earn more balances of 1 cent to $250,000 for funds in excess of $250,000 0.5 APY percentage will be earned $50 minimum opening deposit message and data rates may apply member FDIC This week's episode is brought to you by Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. And that's important for me as an avid Android user to have my audiobook wherever I am so I can seamlessly pick up where I am in the book, whether I'm at home, on my couch, on the go, using my phone, or in my car. And I love listening to science fiction right now as an escape from all the science books I read normally. There's no better place to get that than Google Play. And for a limited time, you can get $10 off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash minds. That's g.co slash play slash mind. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Dr. Mona, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's great to be with you. Every week on Twitter, I see the message, the people of Flint still don't have clean water. Uh, Can you give us an update on the current state of their water? Sure. So Flint is still under a public health emergency, which means that people of Flint still need to be using filtered or bottled water. Um, Our water quality has improved dramatically. The lead levels in our water are actually probably better than some other cities. However, that recommendation is still in place because Flint is in the middle of massive infrastructure work. We are replacing our damaged lead pipes. So the 18 months that we were on this corrosive, untreated water ate up our lead pipes, and that is being replaced. That takes time. Um, Whenever you do any kind of earth-moving infrastructure work, it it risks the release of more lead scale. So it is because of that infrastructure work that people still need to be on filtered and bottled water. The government recently ended the bottled water program for residents. What, What are your thoughts on that move, given what you're seeing on the ground? Yeah, so Flint's recovery is going to take time. Um, Flint, like I said, is still under this public health emergency. Yes, our lead and water levels are much better. However, a lot of folks still don't trust the water coming out of their tap, and they have every reason in the world not to trust their water because of the trauma that happened in Flint. Um, I think the bottled water should have continued. Uh, there are still filters available, but a lot of folks also don't trust you know, the filters. Uh, so you know, in, when you think about kind of the, the, the trauma that happened and the need for um, for you know the, the a longer recovery um, and to rebuild that trust um, the bottled water should have continued 
given everything that's that's happening, there's a lot of a sense of why hasn't this been fixed already, especially from a, a standpoint, a, a justice standpoint for these for these people. Uh, are the expectations that this can be fixed um, quickly out of alignment with what what's just happening on the ground? Yeah, so Flint infrastructure pipe replacement work is actually unprecedented. There's only two other cities in the nation that have replaced their lead pipes, and it took them over a decade, Lansing, Michigan, and Madison, Wisconsin. So Flint is doing it by lawsuit settlement by 2020, which is less than half the time of any of these cities. So that's actually amazing. Um, However, it is still too long um, because that means that every day that that's not complete is a day that people still have to be on bottled water and filtered water. Uh, Let's rewind the clock. How did you first become aware of the water problems in Flint? Sure. So I came, you know, I, as a practicing pediatrician in Flint, I had heard about, you know, the, the quality concerns, the, the odor and the color and the taste issues. And I had heard about the bacteria warnings and, and, you know, all these other kind of general quality concerns, but uh, I was very much reassuring my patients that everything was okay because we were being told by the state that everything was okay. Uh, the water switch happened in April of 2014, and I didn't really get fully involved until the summer of 2015. Um, and that is when I heard from a friend who happened to be a water expert um, about the possibility of lead in the water. Um, and that was the very, very first time I heard about lead uh, being in the water. And when I, I didn't even know before then that there was actually lead in our plumbing, which is uh, so ironic because the word lead means plumbing. It comes from the Latin PB, which means plumbing. Uh, so not until that late summer of 2015 did I did I get involved when I heard about the possibility of lead being in the water. So it was a full year before you even became aware of the issue. Do we have any idea how many kids were exposed during this time period? We, we do. Uh, everybody uh, who drank this water, cooked with this water, you know, ate, you know, this water, everybody uh, was exposed to this water. We worry about the children the most when, when you think about lead because it's a potent irreversible neurotoxin that impacts developing children the most. And there's about 10,000 kids under the age of six, but really the entire population was exposed. And we are now... Um, building a Flint registry to identify everyone who's exposed, but most importantly, to get them connected to the resources so we don't see the consequences of this exposure. And the maximum denominator of people who are exposed are about 140,000 people. 140,000 people. Wow. Let's talk about what you just said, potent irreversible exposure. What does that mean? What are the health consequences for people that have been exposed to lead? Yeah, so lead has no safe level of exposure. Uh, incredible science over the last few decades especially has taught us that even even very low levels that we thought were safe decades ago um, are, are not safe. Uh, and that's primarily because of what it does to children's neurodevelopment. So it impacts cognition, literally how children think. It drops IQ levels. Um, and it impacts behavior. It leads to things like developmental disabilities, uh, attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity. It's even been linked to things like impulsivity and criminality. So lead has these lifelong um, uh, trajectory-altering implications. Not all children who will have these things, hopefully none will, and that's kind of where my recovery work kind of comes into play. Um, But this is what lead does at a population level in terms of especially its impacts in cognition and behavior. Is there any treatment? 
Uh, no, it is um, an irreversible neurotoxin. There is no treatment per se. There's no antidote. There's no magic cure. However, there is so much that can be done to limit its effects, to promote children's development. And that's very much the hope in the story. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is to share our recovery, which is providing children with these wraparound public health interventions um, to limit the consequences of this trauma. And what you're really speaking to is this idea that for those 140,000 people that were exposed, we need to make a lifelong commitment to them to ensure the impacts of this lead don't persist. Is that is that right? Absolutely. And it, it really goes beyond lead. So the Flint water crisis was, was a trauma, as a community-wide trauma. And just actually having trauma and stress and anxiety and guilt and fear, just those emotions can lead to chronic diseases and, and increased uh, mortality. Uh, so it's a recognition that this water crisis is an added toxic stress. So there's a growing recognition in pediatrics and public health of the role of toxic stress. Toxic stress could be things like poverty or exposure to violence or incarcerated parents, abuse, neglect, lack of nutrition, unsafe places to play. All of these things are toxic stresses. And our kids in Flint have so many of these toxic stresses already. Um, so the water crisis was one added toxic stress, one added developmental burden. And we are using very much the emerging science of child development, of brain development, of resilience building um, to mitigate the impact of this toxic stress. And I know the focus is on kids because of uh, of the uh, exposure uh, regarding neurodevelopment, but are there any negative consequences for adults with this exposure as well? Absolutely. Lead impacts almost every organ system and really every age group. So in adults, it's been associated with cardiovascular disease like high blood pressure, uh, kidney disease, out, early dementia, uh, a whole slew of, of negative consequences. Um, and actually a lot of... Um, Another population that we don't think about a lot and folks have been really vocal about is, is pets. So some of the first um, first folks or the first animals exposed to this crisis where we saw symptoms were, were pets. People's animals were getting sick. They were often getting water from non potable water sources. So like the laundry tub basin, which, you know, the laundry tub sink, which might have more lead in it or, or a garden hose. Um, and the animals were getting sick first. So uh, Michigan State University, which has this vet school, actually came to Flint, did testing and also showed increased lead levels in, in the animals exposed. How did you set out to prove the lead exposure, especially, you know, 18 months on from when it first started uh, appearing in the water system? Yeah. So I, you know, my work never should have happened. It never should have been necessary. You never really needed evidence of children uh, with elevated lead in their blood. It stopped really when that first mom said, there's something wrong with my water. Um, you know, it's brownish, it's greenish, it smells weird, you know, with, you know, holding jugs of brown water. Uh, so that's when it really should have ended. Unfortunately, it, it didn't. Um, but then it should have ended when we had more science about what was happening. For example, General Motors stopped using this water just a few months into this water switch because it was corroding their engine parts. Um, that should have been the end of this crisis. Um, but really, it should have ended when, when Mark Edwards, a professor from Virginia Tech, uh, came to Flint, worked hand in hand with the citizens using citizen science and proved scientifically that there was lead in the water. Uh, they did samples throughout the city and showed lead in the water. Um, in public health, there's this concept of primary prevention, which is what you're supposed to do with lead. You're never supposed to expose a population to lead. And if you find it in the environment, that should be it. 
And we found it in the environment. It was in the water. It should have been, it should have ended there. However, um, he was also, dis his work was also, his science was also dismissed and attacked. Um, so when I, you know, when I heard that there was lead in the water, you know, very much by serendipity by, by a friend, um, I sought to uh, find if that lead was getting into our children's blood. Uh, so we looked at children's lead levels, um, which were done as part of their routine screening. And we compared their lead levels before the water switch to after the water switch and noticed that there was an increase in elevated lead levels after the water switch. You know, last year we talked to Sid Roy from Mark Edwards' team about the cascading issues uh, in terms of the science and engineering that led to the crisis. But, you know, the one thing I left from uh, left remembering from that conversation is just his shock and dismay about two things. Like, one, just how residents in Flint were not being listened to uh, in regards to what their water was like. And two, just the general attitude of state and federal officials, especially EPA officials, to the data that was being presented both by residents and, and his team. Can you talk to your experience in these areas, particularly in regards to how um, how it was received, how your data was received by the EPA? Yeah, and that's why this story is so applicable to right now because it's a story of science denial. It's a story of facts being dismissed and denied and the credibility of those folks also being attacked. So yeah, when, when you know, Mark Edwards' research was public, the, the state specifically attacked that. They called him essentially a magician that would just pull rabbits out of hats. Um, and this Mark Edwards is a MacArthur genius, like one of the world's experts on, on lead and water. Um, and he was being attacked. And and then also when my when my science was attacked, when we shared very publicly that, the, you know, we were concerned about the, you know, what was happening with our children because of our research that showed this elevation. Um, I was also attacked. My science was attacked. The credibility of, of me as a profession uh, professional was was attacked. Um, and this is this resonates to today because we see, are seeing attacks on science every day um, in regards to, for example, climate change or vaccines or the very regulations that nationally protect our air and our water quality with the EPA. Uh, so, you know, that's that's one of the reasons I got involved in the March for Science is because, you know, we as scientists, as physicians, as academics need to do a better job walking out of our classrooms and our clinics and our, um, you know, our auditoriums and our Ivy League towers to really work hand in hand with our communities to share the incredible value of our science and and to, con you know, to confront these attacks. You know, I want to come back to to that topic in a in a second, but I, I want to talk about the the search for for blame for somebody. You know, the malfeasance. There was a new EPA report that came out this week, detailing all of the problems internally that happened both at the state EPA and the federal EPA um, that led to this situation. Uh, I might be naive, but I I don't believe that um, officials across the EPA wanted to hurt. The people of Flint. No, Flint. Nobody no, no, nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to poison people today. No. So what was the situation that led to the point where they denied your scientific results? Because that isn't the, the way science is supposed to work. 
<laughs> no. So it's uh, so yeah. This EPA report came out last week, which really um, reaffirms what we've already knew that they they acted too late, that they didn't use you know their oversight ability to 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 really force the state Department of Environmental Quality to to do more and to alert the public. So a lot of reports and investigations have looked at the why, like well, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Um, and the 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 majority of the blame is at the state level, is that our Department of Environmental Quality is at the Office of Drinking Water. Flint was under state control. We were under emergency management. Um, those were the folks who were in charge of treating this water properly, who really knew the science. The majority of the attacks on the science came from there as well. And that's been consistently sh- shared in, in many reports and investigations. And and that 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 is, this is not history. So much is still um, in play as to the what happened and the who knew what when the you know the lawsuits and the hearings they're they're happening right now um, in, in getting at, at at that accountability which is so critically important um, to 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 move to that kind of path of reconciliation is is that is that truth getting and that accountability um, so a lot of a lot of the the why of like why were they attacking you why were they attacking science why were they attacking Mark Edwards work um, a lot of it points to kind of the culture that was at these at these bureaucracies especially in our environmental quality department at the state level that you know maybe it was you know they weren't really focused on public health they were more focused on minimal compliance uh just kind of you know let's see how how long we can you know, use this water source, um, you know, until something happens. The, the move to the Flint River was not supposed to be a permanent switch. It was temporary until a new pipeline was to be built. Um, so I think a lot of kind of the, um, you know, the malfeasance or the criminality was like, oh, let's just see if we can kind of skate by with this as long as we can um, until we switch water sources. But I have no idea. I don't know the why. I wish I knew the why. Because like I said earlier, nobody wakes up um, saying I'm going to poison kids today. Um, but, but, you know, the, part of it, I think was just, you know, covering up a past mistake or just, you know, denying there was a problem and just wanting to kind of, um, push this under the rug. And, and that really is fundamentally, you know, why I wrote this book. It's called what the eyes don't see. Like it's about lead and water. Cause we can't see it. It's about, you know, lead cause lead's a silent epidemic. We don't see the consequences, but it's about, People and places and problems all over that we choose not to see. People did not want to open their eyes to this problem, despite, you know, the heroic work of the moms and the activists and the pastors and the journalists. Like, why were these people not listened to? And it is a rallying cry for all of us to open our eyes. We cannot be blinded um, to these problems everywhere. We've spent 350 to 450 million dollars in Flint so far by a number of estimates and we have a long way to go as you've alluded to before everything all the pipes are replaced um, but can we ever quote unquote fix Flint I think we can and I think that's what we're trying to do um, and that that's so much of what I'm trying to share in, in this book and our work is is the hope and the recovery. Uh, that's that's very science based, you know. Science, common sense, science was denied in Flint. You know, ultimately, science spoke truth to power, and we are we are leaning on science to to fix Flint, uh, especially to to ensure that these children have the brightest future possible. And zooming out from Flint, there's estimates that there are another 10 million homes in the U.S. alone that have lead pipes connected directly to them. While it's not the same situation as Flint in that 
uh, we don't expect these you know corrosion inhibitors not to be used in these locations. There's certainly pockets of areas in the U.S. where water quality is still a a, a huge problem. Uh, how do we approach this sort of zoomed out? Because the way you you put it in your book is Flint is a microcosm of a larger story. Absolutely, and and it's it's lead, and it's about a lot of other things, but specifically about lead. You know, now that I've I've learned so much about water treatment and quality over the last couple of years. We were never intended in this nation to get lead-free water. It was never, quote, unquote, safe. Uh, the regulations that govern lead water, the lead and copper rule, are grossly inadequate. They haven't been updated. They do not uh, reflect the current science on lead exposure, which is no safe level of lead. The standards, the action levels are not health-based. So we need to be doing a lot more as a nation to strengthen these regulations. And because of the inaction at the federal level, a lot of states are going above and beyond. Michigan just this past month, passed a model lead and copper rule, which exceeds the federal standards. Um, but to fully protect all people, we need to be updating these standards to optimize the corrosion control treatment everywhere, but also to get the lead out of our plumbing. Uh, but lead and water is one source. You know, before Flint, people had forgotten about lead. You know, it was a problem of yesterday. Oh, we got lead out of paint. We got lead out of gasoline. But it, but it persists. It's a heavy metal. It's everywhere. And it's an injustice. It disproportionately impacts, you know, our most vulnerable kids. Um, so we need to be doing more as a nation to to eliminate children's exposure to all sources of lead um, and and really invest in the science that, that fully protects them. So, a, you know, it's, it's about one of many toxicities our kids are exposed to and the need for us to do more for our kids. I bet you four years ago, you probably could have never predicted that you'd be able to quote policy on <laughs> on lead regulations on a state by state basis. But here you are. And you spoke to this earlier. You had to step out of the typical scientist physician track of letting the data speak for itself and really become much more of an activist uh, and champion for the people and the results you're seeing. Uh, did you have any hesitation about doing so? And and what do you think the lessons are for scientists around the around the world? Yeah. So I, you know, even before all this, I, I do have a master's in public health and health policy. Um, as a pediatrician, um, our job, like literally in our job description is our role as activists. Uh, even before the water crisis, you know, I had met with legislators and as a residency director in charge of pediatricians training, I send my residents every year to our state capital to advocate for issues that are relevant to, to children's uh, lives and their development. Uh, so this has always been part of my my job as a pediatrician. It is our job to advocate for kids. It is our job to work with the, the many, many sectors that, that impact the lives of children. Of course, I never would have imagined what I am doing now and the kind of the, the level it has gotten to. Um, but I also feel so kind of fortunate and blessed that I've almost been given this amazing megaphone to amplify the issues of children. Um, and it's unfortunate because we are at a place in our nation where we're, we're literally at war with our kids, from our childhood poverty rates to child separation at the border, to using CHIP as a bargaining tool, uh, you know, to, to water issues. And, and, you know, the kind of the list goes on and on about, you know, what how we invest in our children. Uh, I'm continuing to just do my professional duty um, to, to take care of kids at, at that bigger level. But, you know, I often say that I took an oath to protect children. And what I did in Flint and what I continue to do is, is part of that, that oath that I took as a physician. However, you know, I would challenge all the listeners out there that we all took an oath. This is our oath. This is our civic responsibility. This is our human responsibility um, to protect children and to speak up for them and to advocate for them. 
Uh, speaking about the the family separation, um, wh- what do we know about what the impacts are going to be for those kids at the border at this point? Because you spoke to in your book, uh, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and and how they can accumulate over time. Uh, wh- what are the long term prospects for some of these kids as a population? Yeah, so this is the same science that we're using in Flint. So it's the science of early adversity. It's the science of toxic stress. Um, And those, when you have many of these early adversities, um, if it's not buffered by, for example, a supportive caregiver or other resilience-based interventions, you will have lifelong consequences. And the consequences will be uh, very predictable in, in a graded fashion. The more of these adversities you have, the more, you know, uh, uh, for example, risk-taking behaviors you have, and more chronic diseases, and the, actually, the, and then the less mortality that you have. So, what happened in Flint is an example of this, but also what happened at the border. So, uh, I'm so proud of my fellow pediatricians who were some of the first to kind of speak up on behalf of these children at the border, because what was happening there was another example of a toxic stress, a trauma, being separated from your parents, which is the treatment for for any kind of trauma is having that supportive caregiver to buffer that that trauma. So what we know that the consequences of this is, is really lifelong scars, if not, if not, you know, mitigated, um, developmental delays, uh, mental health issues, chronic diseases, uh, impacts on mortality. So that, that science is well known. And what happened at the border is essentially government sanctioned child abuse. To wrap up, the there's a lot of lessons from Flint. There's a lot of things to think about. There's ways that we are have to reevaluate our infrastructure. There's ways we have to reevaluate um, the health consequences from a crisis like this and what that means for the country as a whole. Uh, but it strikes me as as one of the biggest problems to come out of this crisis is how the trust, the fundamental trust between a resident and its government. Uh, that when they turn on the tap, what's coming out is safe, that was broken. That fundamental trust was broken. And that is not easy to repair. And there's no handbook on how to repair it. Do you feel like that's something that can be repaired? And are we on the pathway to it? Yeah. So, you know, I think about that repair as as a truth and reconciliation process. So getting at that truth, getting at the accountability, um, having a role for restorative justice and, and reparations, will, you know, will help in that long, you know, long term path towards reconciliation and trust rebuilding. But it is going to take a long time. Um, I recently spoke to a group of philosophers. So I've never spoken to philosophers, but one person we talked about this trust issue and one of the philosophers countered like, you know, maybe you don't want trust to come back because isn't it healthy to always have mistrust? Isn't it healthy to always question what you think might be wrong? And and I think that's absolutely valid. Maybe we all need to have a little bit of mistrust and then maybe we won't be, you know, taking for granted what, what we believe is safe or not safe. Dr. Mona, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. It's great to be with you. I'm struck by Dr. Mona's last thought, that this sense of science denialism isn't something that's just stuck to vaccines or to climate change, that there is a sense that we oftentimes uh, suppress views that aren't consistent with what we think is going on. And that's probably what happened here, is that a set of EPA officials saw the data, but it just didn't line up with what they thought was happening and some of the objectives that were going on within the move to switch the water system to a new pipeline. And that's 
probably the hard lesson here is that even small actions can have huge consequences and we need to be thoughtful and reflective of what the community thinks for science to operate as successfully as it can. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lingren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Raihala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Cheng, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. Again, ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Indra will be back next week. See you then. This week's episode was brought to you by Memory Bank. Memory Bank's Earn More checking account pays 1.6% annual percentage yield. That's 30 times the national average on interest. No confusing monthly requirements. Just take 10 minutes to open an online account and your deposits will start growing from dollar one. It's super easy and offers all the features you'd expect, such as mobile deposit, bill pay, and external transferability. Visit mymemorybank.com slash minds and apply to start earning your 1.6 APY today. 1.6 annual percentage yield as of 628-2018 paid on earn more balances from one cent to $250,000. For funds in excess of $250,000, 0.5% APY will be earned. $50 minimum opening deposit. Message and data rates may apply. Member FDIC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Mm-hmm.